Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be here. Good to see your lovely smiling faces. Let's hope they stay that way while I'm preaching. <laughs> okay, so as Steve mentioned earlier, we're um, in our series that is entitled The God Who Wants Us. If you'd like to put the, f- the slide up, please, if you have one there. Okay, and um, we're looking at um, the book of Jonah which is in the section of the Bible, the Old Testament, and it's referred to as one of the minor prophets. And um, if you're looking it up, it's um, after Obadiah and before Micah. Only only a two-page, in my Bible anyway, only two pages covers uh, the book of of Jonah. And we're looking at chapter 3. And I've, I've subtitled this, as you see, The Necessity of Preaching. And I hope that that will come through as we, as we go through this. Um, we take up the story uh, after Jonah had spent three days in the belly of the fish. And last week, um, David so helpfully showed us that as awful as, Dave, as Jonah's situation was, when he thought he was going to die, he found that God was there with him and had not abandoned him. And even though he was a rebel... He was not rejected. And God, in his grace, was giving him an opportunity to repent. And we know repent means to change your mind, to turn around and go in a different direction, agree with God. And, that, and that's what he did, which led to his obedience. Previously, he'd refused to go uh, to the city of Nineveh, but now he obeys. And during those three days in his prayer to God, he acknowledges, he says something interesting, he says that those who worship vain idols forfeit the love and the grace of God that could be theirs. So he's musing on this and I think he's really saying, um, I've still got a reluctance to to preach to these people um, um, because I I don't believe that they deserve God's mercy. Um, It's said that um, during the 750-year dominance of the region by the Assyrians, they were the most cruel of oppressors. I think Steve made reference to this in in the first week. Nevertheless, God, in, in his compassion, recommissions Jonah to warn them of his impending judgment, and Jonah obeys. Um, It reminds us, firstly, that all people are in need of God's salvation. Everyone. We know in the New Testament it says that we've all sinned and fall short of God's standard. You know, uh, the glory of God, it says. The glory that God intended uh, for mankind. But secondly, that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance, for none are beyond the scope of his saving love. We may, sadly, in our prejudice at times, think some people are beyond the pale and how can God possibly save them? But this message tells you, no matter how bad people are, God can save them or deliver them um, from his wrath. So let's um, just read the chapter, chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. 
Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of, his, of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Father God, we ask you, Lord, to speak to us from this ancient word. Lord, help it to be relevant to our lives and help us to respond as you would want us to. In Jesus' name. The account of um, Jonah's preaching and the, and the repentance of the people is sketchy to say the least. I say this because we're told in chapter 3 that it was an exceedingly great city requiring three days to cross it. And if you were to read on into chapter 4, the city consisted of more than 120,000 people. So how did Jonah go about his preaching crusade? In modern times, um, well-known evangelists and their teams, they hire stadiums or concert halls. They advertise and they draw people in. But so what did he do? Did he pick a number of strategic places in the city, stand on a soapbox and use some device to gather crowds? We don't know. But what we do know is that his message of impending judgment was heard firstly by the ordinary people and then brought to the notice of the king and all came under deep conviction of sin. So it was the power of his message that apparently an apparently pagan nation acknowledged the God whom Jonah proclaimed and believed his message. In those days, gods were considered territorial. The Jews had their god. The Egyptians had their gods. The Assyrian had their gods. So it's quite remarkable that Jonah going into this city, proclaiming the god of the Jews, in a sense, um, although he would say he was the God of all the earth, that these people actually acknowledged that he was God and they turned from their evil ways. Uh, some have speculated that Jonah must have been quite a spectacle because the effect of three days in the belly of a fish would have bleached his skin white from the stomach juices. Um, you both thought about that, but that's quite possible, I suppose. Uh, maybe this, um, his opening words to get people's attention were to refer to his appearance and to testify to God's mercy and grace and deliverance to him. Uh, whether there's any truth in this or not, it's not the main point, which is the city as a whole entered into a time of deep repentance. 
with the king issuing his authority to make sure all participated. And rather strangely, the animals participated as well. They were covered in sackcloth cloth and, and, and ashes. Uh, I think we should note first of all that fasting and covering themselves with sackcloth and ashes was not a way of gaining favour with God. They weren't trying to earn a, a place with God, but it was a recognised way that people humbled themselves and expressed shame. They were casting themselves on God's mercy. And at the end of the day, that's all we can do because none of us can justify ourselves in God's uh, presence, not with our own merits, our own efforts. We all have to cast ourselves on God's mercy, but God wonderfully responds when we do that. God wonderfully responds. Jonah's preaching was effective. The people repented and God had compassion on them and did not destroy the city. Uh, next week we'll find out how um, Jonah responded to this. But in the meantime, what does this say to us? Because as David mentioned last week, um, the New Testament is written, and these, sorry, the, the Old Testament and these stories uh, are written not just as a historical record, but they're there for our instruction so that we might be encouraged and have hope in God. You can read about that in Romans 15. So what's the message or lesson, lesson from this story? It is that God's love and compassion for people he has created has no limits. And it is communicated by people he has chosen and called. There is always a human uh, uh, intermediary, if you like, to convey this message. If you know that you've been chosen and called by the gospel, if you know that you're saved, if you know that you're a child of God, then you have been called to mission, either individually or maybe together as a church. And God's people, by definition, are missional. When we are saved, we're missional, which means that what we've been given by God's grace, we are to pass on to others. We're to share it with others. The Jews, as God's chosen people, who were set apart for God, were meant to be a light to the Gentiles. That's the phrase that's used many times in the Old Testament. They were to be a visual aid to the nations round about at what it was like to be a, a nation under God, right? living under God's law, living under God's protection. They were meant to be a visual aid. But they missed the point and developed an exclusiveness that continues probably in some measure to today. Hence Jonah's reluctance to consider that God could have mercy on the Assyrians might well have been an expression of this. So the responsibility to make God and his salvation known in the world now is passed to the church. And whilst we may communicate something of the love of God through acts of mercy and kindness, such as feeding and clothing the needy, lifting people out of poverty, and a host of other ways of serving and helping our community, which I, I believe we should be doing. It's part of what we should be doing. But in order for people to be saved, they need to hear God's message of salvation. They must have the gospel preached to them in one way or another, which could include one-to-one -one sharing the good news, or, or reading the scriptures, or having a suitable gospel tract which outlines God's way of salvation. 
I'm sure we're all aware that in our world today there are those who, although they've rejected Christianity in the church, yet claim to be spiritual and look in all sorts of places for spiritual experiences and may even say that they've found God in their own way. Um, typical of that would be people who say, I don't need to come to church, especially on a lovely day like this. I just like to be in the countryside. I like to be uh, uh, in the midst of, of nature and I feel close to God uh, when I'm in, in the midst of, of uh, the wonderful things that I find uh, in the open. And I'm sure we all feel something of the presence of God, particularly for those of us that know God. We acknowledge he is the creator. We're in the midst of God's wonderful creation. But that will not save them. It won't save them just by enjoying um, creation. Um, also, it's not unusual these days to hear of people from other faiths, particularly Muslims, having dreams and visions of Jesus and being convinced that the God that they have been seeking through their own religion is indeed Jesus. And what... He, and you know, some, but sorry, <laughs> but this is not enough to save them uh, uh, because someone needs to explain to them who this Jesus is and what he has done to forgive sins and bring people to God and give them eternal life. In other words, they need to have the gospel preached to them. Ah, oh, you might say, well, um, this is a message for preachers. I'm not a preacher, so I'll switch off. No, not at all, for whilst it's true there's still a significant um, place for formal gospel preaching uh, to small groups, to big crowds, Sunday by Sunday as a regular way of building up uh, the church and calling more people to follow Jesus. It's something that we can all have a hand in. We are called, as we know, to be witnesses, which is that we are called to give an account of the hope that's within us to give our testimony, to say what Jesus has done for us. But if the people that hear us say to us, well, what does that mean to me? What, what should I be doing? Then somehow we need to be prepared to be able to explain the gospel to them. Now, we might use um, you know, some material that we found to be particularly helpful, attract. Um, I've even heard a story years ago of somebody used to get into a taxi in the back and he would say to the driver, can I just read you from this little book? And he read a gospel tract and he claimed that a number of people um, got saved because of that. But, uh, so people need to hear the gospel, the good news about Jesus. You know, right from the time when the church was born, you remember on the day of Pentecost, we say that's the day of the church's birth when the 120 were gathered and the Holy Spirit came on them uh, and Peter preached and, and thousands were added to the church that day. But it wasn't long before persecution broke out against them and they were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And at that time their, their leaders remained in, in Jerusalem. And we might have thought that was the end of the church. But no, actually, the church thrived. It didn't wipe out the church because these groups of believers gossiped the gospel, as it said, wherever they went. And it was only later that the apostles visited the fledgling churches to make sure that they were properly established and appoint leaders. So the ordinary people 
were sharing the good news. Paul emphasises the importance of preaching in Romans 10. You might like just to turn to that. Romans 10 and verse 8. Perhaps it's, I, I should, it's more, to be more precise, it's the importance of what is preached. Paul says this, Romans 10, verse 8. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. What he's saying is, you've received this word, this gospel, and it's transformed your life. It's in your heart, it's in your life, and you're speaking of it. You're speaking of it to others. And he says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then he asks some really crucial questions, which I think we understand why he has to ask these questions. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. We understand those questions, don't we? People won't hear unless those things are in place. Therefore, the necessity of preaching... Therefore, for people to be saved, we have to use words, but not only words. Because um, in many cases, we have to have some kind of relationship with the people that we want to, to share the gospel with. But in the end, we must use words, either written or spoken. Now, words in themselves are very powerful, aren't they? They're not just a way of communicating thought. Even just on a human level, we know that words can tear down or can build up. Words of condemnation or rejection have lasting, devastating effects on people, marring their progress through life. Whereas words of love and encouragement enable people to thrive and reach their full potential. But God's words have additional power. Power to create, power to make alive, power to transform, power to save. And we read something of that in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis, in the first chapter, about God creating. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so on. And he created the heavens and the earth with all its vegetation and trees and all the animals. And then, as the pinnacle of his creation, he said, let us make man in our own image. So God created man in his own image both male and female. These are God's direct creative words, his powerful creative words. But God still speaks today. We would say probably primarily through the Bible, not exclusively, but mainly through the Bible. His timeless word, which is publicly and permanently available. It's available in most places around the world now. It's available. God's very words are available to us. And when that word is brought to people's attention, when it is preached or it's shared, it can be what God wants to say in a specific situation. A few weeks ago in our growth group, we were actually sharing this point. People were sharing how 
just in their daily Bible reading, they found words jumped out of the page. And they really felt God had spoken through his word. And that's amazing. But there's another aspect too, that it's staggering to think that when flawed human beings like us, and incidentally like Jonah, with imperfect speech are given words by God to proclaim, God's power can be released to transform lives. It is the word of God that has power to accomplish God's purpose. Now whilst the personality and eloquence of the speaker may contribute to conveying the message, it's never a substitute for clear proclamation of the word itself. It must never detract from it, never smother it, never obscure it. We've recently heard, haven't we, of the death of the a great American preacher, Billy Graham, I think he was almost a hundred, and celebrated his life of worldwide preaching of the gospel over so many years. Um, I reckon thousands, if not millions of people owe their salvation to uh, Billy Graham's preaching. It may be that there are those here who are old enough, um, ha having uh, attended Billy Graham's uh, crusades in somewhere, um, like Haringey in London, that they would put their salvation as a, a day when they responded to a message uh, from Billy Graham. Now, I obviously don't, uh, haven't heard the vast number of his messages, but my observation is this, that they did not include much in the way of fancy stories, but powerful scripture proclamation directed to the hearts of the hearers. That's how he did it. He had the way of doing that. And in actual fact, that's what preaching is. It's different from teaching. It is actually bringing the word of God to the hearts of people and expecting a response. Billy Graham always expected a response from the people he was preaching to. And this was uppermost in the mind of the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the church at Corinth. Now, Paul obviously had a very sharp mind. I'm just amazed when I read all his letters and, and how he was able uh, to, to lay out doctrine in the way that he did. And he was probably a, a very good orator. And most probably he could have held a crowd with his speaking, but he was so jealous for the power of the preached gospel itself. So he said to the church at Corinth, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, this is the point, not on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God, the power of the preached word of God. Now, because the gospel tells people that they cannot save themselves, no matter how hard they try, no matter how moral they try to make themselves, or no matter how religious they are, it can be offensive to some. This gospel can be offensive. Um, Paul was determined not to be offended because he'd seen that the gospel had power to save. Uh, firstly in his own life and then in the lives of others. Power to lift people from the depths of depravity and despair and to make them holy children of God. 
He said to the church at Rome, this is Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed, or I am not offended, by the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. It's for everyone. And just note, what do we have to do? Do we have to climb mountains? Do we have to do penance? Do we have to do all sorts of other things? No. It's for everyone who believes. That's what we need to do. So the spoken preach word of God has power. And the inhabitants of Nineveh demonstrate this. It was not the personality of Jonah that saved them, nor his commitment to God's cause. Because from what we read in chapter 4, he was probably still reluctant. He had a heavy heart when he went to, to Nineveh. No, it was God's word given in God's time that averted disaster. Having said that it's all about the power of God's word, that does not mean that we can preach it in any context without due consideration of the culture and the context and what the hearers will actually hear. Will they hear the words that we... and, the th and will they understand what it is that we're saying? We know that words can mean different things in different cultures, don't they? Um, let me give you a, s a simple example. If I say to you, um, by the way, I don't drink, what does that mean? Does it mean I don't take fluid into my body ever? No, it doesn't, does it? We, we understand that it means I don't drink alcohol because that, that is a cultural understanding, if you like. Uh, and, um, you know, as Christians, we have a vocabulary that includes words seldom used in everyday speech. So, for example, to use the word that I've used quite a few times this morning, like saved, to ask someone if they are saved could either be misinterpreted or mean nothing at all. So our society, somebody said this, that our society today and the church can be viewed like being on two sides of a great chasm, huge great chasm, with the Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church on one side doing everything right, and then on the other side, the liberal contemporary society, which is quite clearly post-Christian. We live in a post-Christian society. So if we, as the church, shout the word of God across the, the chasm, it may find few hearers. It could be a bit like me standing on a street corner in Herne Bay and preaching the authentic, pure, unadulterated gospel but it's unlikely to be heard in a way that will bring people to salvation. Not because there's anything wrong with the word, uh, but because people, unlike former generations, there's no general consciousness of God, of heaven and hell and judgment. And also the medium of the purely spoken word is not the way that most people receive, inf receive information these days. So, recognising this chasm... What do we need to do? We need to build bridges and find common ground as a starting point for the gospel. And Paul understood this and said he wanted to be all things to all men so that by all means he might save some. You may recognize that phrase. Now he did not mean that he would modify or water down the gospel to make it more palatable uh, to his hearers. Not at all. Uh, 
but rather he looked for ways of identifying with his hearers, of working with their culture as long as it didn't compromise the gospel. For an example, he identified with the Jews as wherever he went, he usually went first into the synagogues and he would preach to the Jews the long-awaited Messiah. He would take their scriptures and say, the Messiah you've been waiting for has come. It is Jesus Christ and he's been raised from the dead and he is now Lord of all. He also identified with non-Jews as he spoke with Greek philosophers in Athens on Mars Hill. You remember when he found that that altar to the unknown God, right? And he identified with them. Um, he referred to their objects of worship, not condoning them, but he used that in his conversation. And their poetry as a springboard for the gospel. That's in Acts 17. More recently, in 1962, missionaries to the primitive head-hunting cannibal people of Erie and Jaya, uh, New Guinea, were making no headway in reaching the gospel, reaching the people with the gospel, a people who saw treachery as something to be prized and a way of befriending people to kill them and eat them. Missionary, the missionaries prayed for a way to communicate with these people whose culture was so different from their own. How could they tell people of God's love when treachery was their highest goal? Then they discovered an ancient tradition that when there were warring tribes, if a man gave his own baby son to his enemies, that man could be trusted. And everyone who laid his hand on the given son was bound not to work violence against those who gave him. And so the missionaries were able to tell of a God who gave his son, that they might be at peace with him. Many turned from their evil practices and followed Jesus and a thriving church was established and it still exists today. God had placed redemptive analogies into this culture as keys for preaching the gospel. Now most of us uh, are not called to engage with uh, such extremes of culture difference, are we? But we do need to have some understanding of how our culture has changed and find ways of communicating the unchanging message, message <laughs> sorry, I, I'll change my teeth later, uh, uh, message of the gospel in a fast-changing world. For example, uh, the Alpha Course has been hugely successful. Most people know about the Alpha Course. Most people have seen it advertised on buses and so on. It's been so successful in this country and around the world, introducing people to Christianity and starting them on the road to discipleship. It had its origins 40 years ago in Holy Trinity Church, Brompton. And as good as it's been in its traditional format, in 2016, it was updated to include a series of films, feature stories uh, and interviews to better engage with the modern culture and we've used that course over the years and we appreciate the changes that have been made but we were still finding that it assumed people had some basic knowledge of the existence of God and of the person of Jesus and the Bible but that's less the case in our society today so we welcome the Christianity unwrapped course some of you will have done that that was written by Carl Maidment from our Tenterden Church uh, because it starts by assuming people know nothing about God or the Bible. 
And that's what we use now for people wanting to take a look at Christianity. But we haven't abandoned the Alpha course. We now use that as a follow-up discipleship course. Most churches today have ways of engaging with their communities to show the love of God and to help people be more receptive to the gospel. Um, this reminds me of perhaps Jesus' most famous parable, the parable of the sower, where the different conditions of people's hearts and their ability to receive the word of God is represented by different conditions of soil. You remember, hard trampled ground, rocky ground, weed infested ground, but there was also good soil that received the seed of God's word and produces a bumper crop of transformed productive lives. For all sorts of reasons, people may reject the gospel. It may be they've never heard it, or they become resistant to it. And I hope that part of what we may be doing as we engage with our community in such things as food banks, street pastors, coffee and chaos, Christians Against Poverty, the art group, and many other ways that we seek to um, reach out to our neighbours will help to prepare the soil of people's hearts uh, to receive the life-changing uh, word of God and uh, learn about Jesus Christ because in the end that must be our aim we must somehow communicate the gospel Jonah's message from God was specific to the time, place and people and it produced dramatic, dramatic results the whole city repented from, of their evil ways and disaster was averted but it was just for a season because it wasn't long before Nineveh and Assyria was overrun by the Babylonians the Medes and the Persians it was only for a season so what the message we have is a far better message than the one that was given to Jonah to preach because in the gospel whilst in the same way we call people to repentance uh, for the forgiveness of sins this time it's through faith in Jesus yes we do that but it's not for a season it's not just for a season uh, but it's for all time because Jesus death on the cross paid for our sins past present and future if we are secure in the love of God through Jesus Christ uh, then our future is secure and no matter how much we mess up we have cast a cast iron insure, assurance of forgiveness. For those who have received Jesus, who have welcomed him into their lives as Lord and Saviour, the way is open for an everlasting friendship with God the Father. And more than that, they receive eternal life, which begins now and goes on forever. And nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate them from the love of God in Jesus Christ. This is why it's such good news. This is why we must use every means that we find to uh, engage with our culture, share the love of God, preach the good news about Jesus, calling people to repentance and faith in him. Hence the necessity of preaching. Just to close, let me um, just make this more personal. Um, this is what our gospel is about this is why we have to preach it this is why it's such good news but I want to ask you have you received that good news into your own life do you know the joy of sins forgiven 
Do you know that you have a place in God's kingdom that is secure forever? That nothing can separate you from God's love? Do you know that security in your life? Do you know that you can actually face God on the day of judgment and know that you will be declared righteous? Not your own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus. Earlier we read that the, the gospel is the power of God for everyone who believes. It is the power of God for everyone who believes. And as I said at the time, it is all we have to do is to believe. We think, no, there must be more. God must re require more of me. I must work for it. I must do something. No, not at all. It is for everyone, no matter who you are, Jew, Greek, Assyrian, it doesn't matter. It's for everyone who believes. But of course, what that belief amounts to is that firstly, that we believe that Jesus, when he died on the cross that we celebrated at Easter just a few weeks ago, was actually dying for our sins. He was taking the punishment that we deserve so that we do not have to face judgment. And also the Bible says that Jesus took our sin upon himself and in exchange gave us his righteousness. So belief is to believe those truths about Jesus but also it means a transfer of trust. That once we were trusting ourselves, once we were trusting that somewhere or other I'll get by and when I face God I'll sort it out with him. You won't. Um, because um, that, that we just so much need the righteousness of Jesus. So we transfer our trust from ourselves to Jesus and what I would say is if you've not made that commitment if you've not given your life to Christ if you've not repented of your sins and accepted Jesus as saviour I say do it today do it now the Bible says today is the day of salvation tomorrow may be too late for some people in the world it will be too late because they're not here they're not here but let's not make it too late for you. We're going to sing a song okay, to finish with. It's not a song of devotion. It's actually a song uh, about the, uh, the necessity of preaching. But what I would say is, if you've never given your life to Jesus, then while we're standing, whilst we're singing, come forward and we'd love to pray with you. One of the things that Billy Graham used to say was, uh, he used to invite people forward, but he used to say, Jesus died publicly, so why not make public your confession? And I would say if you do that, you will find joy and strength and such encouragement. So don't leave it. If you've not made that decision, if you've not committed your life to Christ, then come and do it this morning. As we sing, there is a voice that must be heard. Do you want to stand if you're not already?